Venerable Master, Dhamma friends, could we take it up just a little, little bit? Welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. This is the 22nd of June, and it is the summer solstice. This is the longest day of the year, that is to say the longest daylight hours, shortest nighttime hours, and it is the first day of summer, all of that in one. And... Uh, It's also the time of the supermoon. And maybe some of you don't know about the supermoon, but this is the day of the year when the moon passes closest to the earth as it goes around in relationship to the sun. So uh, at 7.58 tonight, which is 20 minutes, actually about, what is it, 20, 30 uh, not quite, 20-some minutes from now, um, on the eastern horizon, the largest moon of the year is going to be, appear to be rising, appears to be the largest because it's the way the angles work as we look in the eastern horizon. So this is, uh, this is one of those astronomically, symbolically, and even poetically because the summer solstice was uh, uh, the setting for lots of literature, Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare and all uh, have to do with this uh, longest longest day of the year, shortest night of the year. That's today. That's the day we're at, the 22nd. It's also the first day of what? First day of summer, but that's also the uh, first day of cancer, right? Cancer astrologically, not cancer the disease, cancer astrological sign. All right. Can we recite the name of the Avatamsaka assembly and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who arose with this text? We'll do that together. Namo Tafang Guangpo Ayenji Ayen Highway Opusanamo Tafang Guang for Ayen Ji Ayen Highway Opusanamo Tafang Guang for Ayen Ji Ayen Highway Tonight, which is we have empty seats 
and yet we have people sitting back without any seats, without any benches. And there are two reasons why. One is because nobody likes to climb over other people, and the other reason is because there's a bunch of benches over there that didn't get deployed. So I'm going to ask Nam and John. John is our go-to auxiliary man tonight. If you wouldn't mind knocking Roberto out of the way, just be really rude to him. And, um, kidding about that. And set out those benches so that the ladies here have somewhere to put their sutra and their feet. Okay, great. Then we need some cushions. Great, yeah. Uh, the other thing would be to come forward and take the seats that are available. I know that's, there's a, a mind that has to change before we can do that, which is hard. So if people would like to hear a Vietnamese translation, there is one available up in the balcony. Thank you, Tina. Okay, Connie, I'm going to ask you to jump forward and fill in the empty seats first. Okay, there we go. Uh, could we get all of them out there? I think we're going to need them. Do you mind? Yeah, just, just empty that. The men's side, it doesn't seem like much. It seems like we don't need more. There's so many empties at present. But I think probably by 9.15, many of these are going to be full. Alan, I'm going to ask you to move over because you know as well as I do, there are no other monks here tonight. All right. Sherful used to blast people, oh my, when he said, you know, fill in the empty seats first. Don't sit in the back because it's like luxurious with lots of space because people don't like to climb over you. Okay. Funny habits of monks. You know what they say? So, if the monks don't act weird, Nobody will bow to the bodhisattvas. That's the, the line in Chinese. Don't know how the logic works, but that's, it always gets a laugh anyway. All right, have we all turned off our cell phones? Click to avoid having to dig into your pocket later when it goes off. Okay, I think we're pretty much ready. Would you turn please in your text to page 24 and 25? It was amusing last, last week, uh, actually two weeks ago now, when we finished the lecture two weeks ago, uh, someone who will remain nameless, uh, one of our regulars, said, could you please not lecture on the text next week? Why? Well, because we can't be here. We have to be up at CTDB and we want to know how it comes out. I thought, ah, now we're getting somewhere. That's great. If the lectures are so compelling that people like can't bear to miss one, that's where we belong. So why is that? It's because the CTDB had the 18th observance of, of Master Hua's demise. And uh, so they had, everybody had to go up on Friday and Saturday to prepare for the 1,900 guests who came. It's the biggest event of the year at CTDB has become this way that people all come from the Bay Area to, and from farther away, from L.A., from San Jose, from even uh, Sacramento and Seattle some, to uh, be with 
the assembly at CTDB when it's the, you don't want to say the anniversary or the celebration, when it's the, the day we observe our, our teachers uh, entering nirvana, leaving the world. 17 buses came last year. So it was a big day and it took lots of hands. So as a result, last week we had a small house, but a lively one. So what do we do with that request? Well, I want to honor that request. And last week, we, knowing that people couldn't bear to, to miss uh, the sutra, so we only lectured on one paragraph, and we finished at nine. We finished early. So what I'm going to do is repeat that paragraph, and it's the last one on our page. And go once over lightly, kind of reprise what we did last week, and then move ahead. So we're down at the bottom, last paragraph. And this is a verse, so I'm going to give a melody to it. And please uh, repeat after me, and then we'll, we'll do the English together. Here we go. Pusa chin show bushedai. Pusa chin show bushedai. Chida shushin jejizu. Chuan show for thou wu yen juan. Chuan Great. Oh, sounds good. Let's do it in unison and harmony. Here we go. Together. The Bodhisattva cultivates diligently. He is never lax or lazy. He promptly obtains ten mind sets and perfects them all. Intently seeking Buddhahood, he never tires or wearies, determined to ascend to rescue living beings. You'll notice we're nearly done. Got one page left. Then we're done with the fourth ground, moving on to the fifth ground. This is talking about a bodhisattva. Could be a he, but we could add an S to those pronouns. It could be a she. So half the room, numerically way more than half, could read this text and say, this is talking about me. I don't have to be in a man's body first. This could be me. The Bodhisattva cultivates diligently. She is never lax or lazy. This is the fourth ground, the fourth stage out of ten. It's about vigor. Vigor. And vigor translates as strength. Our Bodhisattva here is strong and vigorous. Why? Why is that? If you put it next to number three and number five out of ten, it makes more sense. Number three is patience. Number five is samadhi. Number four is strength. So what's it like? Why is it that way? If, if anybody has meditated a long time, some of you are meditators, maybe many of you have had meditative practice. You practice regularly right now, maybe. 
you know that there's this thing called the wall. Athletes know it, swimmers, runners, um, bodybuilders, people who are doing uh, anything at distance. If you run a half marathon or if you're a bicycle rider, you know there's a place, even if you jog, you get to that place where your lungs want to stop. They want you to stop. There's a catch in your side, a charley horse. There's a, in, when you meditate, there's a pain in your knees right, or a pain in your back. And your muscles and your mind is saying to you, stop now, please. Or maybe it's not even polite. It's stop now, you idiot. I hurt. Stop now. I'm going to die. Right? All the things that your, your nerves and maybe your emotions, your fear, is saying to get you to not go that next step. Because mostly why the next step is unknown territory. What if? Your mind starts to give you all kinds of reasons why you should stop. What if? What if you just die? What if, what if nobody finds you? What if your body just curls up here and three weeks later somebody finds a skeleton? You know, All kinds of stories to get you to stop. Sometimes, sometimes that's, it's reasonable. Why? Because you're, um, the toxins are building up in your muscles. Um, what is it? It's uric acid, carbon dioxide, things that ordinarily, in order to keep the comfort level, your body would tell you and you would pull back, usually. So, if you... You athletes who know this state, swimmers get it a lot. Skiers can get it. Anytime that you're repeating a process past the comfort level, you have choices. And one choice is to listen to it and stop, right? You just slow down. You, you, you stay within your comfort zone. What happens when you do that is nothing much happens. Not much changes. If you are training and if you have a form, if you have a, a good dharma, a good method, and you take that next step, what happens is growth. You can grow. You can do what's called progress. Make, make progress. You can progress. Progress or progress. Um, now, let's talk about the other side. Sometimes, if you take that next step, you do break. You do, you don't die, but you can really uh, do some damage. If you, for example, you're drinking. I know none of you drink. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's say, for, ah, a better, better example. You're eating ice cream. Ah, now, some of us eat ice cream. So you're eating ice cream, and you get brain freeze. You know, it goes right up, and you don't, and that, that funny... And you're like, hmm. or you start to shiver or you even get goosebumps and your common sense says to you, enough. But guess what? You haven't finished your pint or your cone and you got a double, triple dip cone and you're eating it all yourself and you got half of it left and you don't want to like throw it in the garbage or set it on the bench or like, you don't have a nephew or a niece to hand it to to help you finish. 
What do you do? Well, you could override that little voice and eat the whole thing. And damage results, right? In that case, you, you know what I'm talking about. You get the idea. There's a whole bunch of, of circumstances where this would apply. If you override the little voice, sometimes you can harm yourself. You can hurt. You, your stomach gets off cold. You can OD on the sugar. Um, you can add th- two pounds to your weight if you overdo the ice cream. Um, in other words, your system is damaged. That's the negative side. If when you're meditating, let's get back to our Buddhist example, if you are meditating and the little voice is going, stop, I'm going to die right here. You're killing me. I can't stand it. Not one second more. My knee is on fire. Right? And if at that point you uncross your legs because it's really uncomfortable sitting there. What happens? Not much. You meditated. It was okay. It was good. Did you make any progress? No. Why? Because you listened to a voice that many times is better ignored. The difference is sitting in meditation is a wholesome dharma. That's a fa, a method, a technique that actually will transform you will help you grow in wisdom if you can sit a little longer. (coughs) So we have to know what's the right voice to listen to and the wrong voice to listen to. The thing about a wholesome dharma, a good method, is it acts to put you in the shape of a Buddha or a bodhisattva. Most of the Buddha images we see, the Buddha is sitting here like this, right? He's like, gong. Occasionally you see the Buddha who's standing like this, but mostly they're in meditation. It's because that dharma, that shape, that method, takes the earth, air, fire, and water and consciousness of your living being's life, of your human life, and it, the word that we use is smelts. You think of something going into the fire like gold and getting the dross, smelt it out. What's left when you do that, when you go through that discomfort, is the essence, is your Buddha nature. What goes away is the ignorance, the afflictions, the emotions, the fear, for example, the conscious mind that is so strong in most of us, that conscious mind that's in there chattering all the time, I'm in charge. I'm really in charge. You better listen to me or else. You better, if you don't listen to me, well, just think what, what terrible things could happen. You know, and you go, uh-huh, okay. Meanwhile, I'm not done meditating. Shh. I'll give you a cookie if you'll shut up. I'll take you out for a walk to the ice cream parlor. We'll get some strawberry gelato later. Okay. Shh, be quiet. You know. Whatever it takes to calm that editor to to quiet the mind, to just override that voice. What happens is when the when the bell rings, ding, and you're done, guess what? You didn't die. Your leg didn't fall off. Right? You didn't go crazy the way your fear was telling you. Okay, 
What's the difference? The difference is patience and vigor. Number three and number four. These two grounds, we're on number four now, are the key, the gateway, the doorway to what? To number five, which is samadhi, ding, concentration, meditative concentration. That's the way you get there. And now, number four that we're just about to finish here is sometimes called strength. It takes strength to get out there and cross your legs. Usually in the morning, sometimes at night, sometimes at lunch in the office, or in between classes at school. You go back to your car and you sit, or you find a quiet tree to sit under in between classes. That takes strength, vigor. You have to kind of get out there and do it. But there's inner strength, which is you just have to do it again. Do it again tomorrow. A lot of number five of samadhi comes from repetition. That's inner strength. So the vigor that this is talking about is a couple kinds. There's the vigor, physical vigor, just getting up and doing it, right? Sitting there. getting Instead of rolling over and going back to sleep, you get out and meditate. But more than that is the inner vigor that comes from putting yourself through it again. Now, that's really important as we understand number four. The reason being, this is really boring stuff. Meditating for another hour, two hours a day again, you know, that's what could be more dead brain than that. Can't you think of something to do? You're just sitting there? Yeah, I can't actually. I, I think there's something at the other end of this process. So I'm putting myself through the training. I'm putting myself back in the smelting fire one more time because, you know what? What's really boring? Ignorance is really boring. Not knowing anything is really boring. Getting pushed around by my fears, that's super boring. Because why? It's the same old. It's the same old flavor, which is, I don't know. The thing about ignorance in the end is, I don't know. I don't know where I came from. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's the best thing to do in this situation. Most of the time I just wind up same old. Sometimes better than others, mostly kind of blah. That's the story. And the law, the more I run for pleasure, the more I run away from pain, the more confused I get. And you know what? I'm getting older and I still don't know. I just get older and I don't have a clue. And in my relationships, somehow the relationships always wind up behind the eight ball. You know that phrase, that chung yu, behind the eight ball? It always seems to be like there's some, it's never the way I want it to be. Right? There's always like, she comes up with something that I can't figure out or he does something I can't explain and he's just like a pain so much, he's a jerk and she's like 
mysterious and like does this woman thing that hides, you know, and it's like there's always something that's not the way you wanted it. Birthday plans, perfect birthday plans. You get all the right reservation at the restaurant. You got the right flowers. You got the right gift. You got, and then out of the blue, flat tire. Or a phone call. Somebody needs you at the hospital. And it all goes away. And it's not the way it was supposed to. You know, there's always that little something that goes, that makes it not what you thought. That's boring. Right? To have it always be kind of like karma, which is this result of my behavior in the past that just some shows up on the, out, of, out of the blue on the horizon, and I have to go with it. That's the same old. So the Bodhisattva goes, yeah, I've tasted that. It's the same old stuff. Maybe if I can sit here a little longer, one more time, maybe I'll turn the wheel just a little bit. Things will be different and different. Maybe. So this is what? This is called cultivation. This is the Buddha's method for getting past the same old, which is dukkha, not satisfying, doesn't hit the mark, not up to the mark. So what's the price you pay? Boring, same old, and you got to get out there and do it. you got to actually put yourself through it. So that's the, that's the, uh, the difference. Here we are, number three and number four out of ten. This is the strength one. Inner strength, got to face the repetition, got to do more reps. In weightlifting, they say you got to push out more reps, more repetitions, you got to do it again. One more time. Then, even though it burns, even though it's not comfortable, something changes. You get somewhere. That's the difference. And... If you one one more comment about that, this experience of facing the boredom and the pushing yourself to the limit—it's an inner experience. You yourself go through it. You have to do it, and nobody knows because it's just this kind of little bit of discomfort, a little bit of fear, a little bit of resistance. Nobody knows that you're doing it except you. Except if you look behind this method, there are 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, 100,000 times 10, 100,000 times 100, 100,000 times 1,000, 100,000 times 100,000, 100,000 times 100,000 times 100,000 people throughout history who have done this and had the same experience that you are having as you sit there and have gotten results. If you want to look at the lab report, at the track record, the Buddha Dharma's track record is impeccable. 100,000 people try it, 100,000 people get results. That's why it's called a fa. Fa means a, a method that you can fa, that you can, you can take the noun to a verb. 
You can model yourself after this method and you'll get results. It's the method for taking ordinary folks like us and turning us into sages who have wisdom and compassion and who can stitch themselves back into the fabric of humanity. We rejoin Indra's net through this method. And at the other end of that is, guess what? Not lonely. Not lonely. If I know I've kind of... Um, I'm, what am I riffing on here? I'm kind of doing a, a discourse on vigor and strength. It comes from patience and heads towards samadhi. If I had to say the number one... Um, what do you say? Problem. The number one issue for thinking people, for conscious, aware people, is what? Loneliness. That loneliness is not just, oh, it's Saturday night and I don't have a date, so I'll go to the monastery instead. You know, Not that. It's not that kind of lonely, although that kind of lonely might be there. Nothing better to do, might as well go listen to the sutra, you know. He sings a song and tells a story, that's worth it, you know. Not that, although, any puppets tonight? Let's check. So, kind of that, but, yes, there is, there's a mad cow. There he is. We're going to hear from the mad cow later. There he is. Spitting mad, really mad, mad crazy. Mad crazy or mad angry? Both. Okay, why? I'm a mad cow. People eat me. I don't want to be eaten. So that's why I come here. It's nice to be with the Buddhists. They don't eat mad cows. I don't have to be mad here, but it's a habit by now. Really mad. So, okay. You look kind of mad. You look kind of crazy mad. Watch out for those horns, all right? Just you keep those to yourself. There. Okay. Hear more from you later? Yeah, but it'll be the same. Angry all the time. Okay, no problem. Anger management issues? Yeah, just stop eating me. That'll help a lot. Okay, good. I get it. Okay, so he's here. We'll hear from more from him later. The mad cow. But um, the loneliness thing is really interesting because if you start thinking about that, it's we have this perception, just coming out of mom's womb, we have this perception that we stop here. This is the end of me, right? This is as far as I go, right here. That's, that's it. And that single fact is a determiner of so much of our behavior. The spouse, the, the, the partners we seek, the romances we stumble into and try to get back out of later, the contracts we enter into, the foods we eat, the things we watch, the things we believe, so much of them arise because of that perception that this is as much as, this is me. I'm alone, there's me, and you're all outside. And this is mine, and can't have it. I want it, it's mine. And babies with their toys, my toys, mostly. Some, some share, but we have to teach them to share. Some British Petroleum does the very same thing with the oil of the planet underneath the Gulf. Same Ours, my oil, my shareholder's oil. No, it's not. It's not. It's not yours. Never was yours. I have the contract that says it's mine. No, it's not yours. So, same impulse. 
That's a big motivator, is me and mine, that every Buddha, every sage, every bodhisattva who's ever used this patience and vigor, these two, being there when it hurts and coming at it again, coming at it again. Everybody who has done that wakes up to a single truth, which is what? Not alone. Not alone. That's the teaching of compassion. Right? So, what is the purpose of wisdom? Wisdom allows you to go past the surface to see what's really going on underneath the surface. If you think of it as directional. Right? Well, what the Bodhisattva discovers is that everything is shared. The wisdom says there is no me to begin with. That's what the Bodhisattva and what you will realize after patiently sitting through the pain, vigorously doing it again until you get to samadhi and the samadhi works on the mind and the thoughts and you see, oh, by golly, it's just like they said, we're really tong ti. We're really sharing one big body. And that awareness of lonely is an illusion. It's a delusion. But boy, do we have it until we enter samadhi and get wisdom. We really do. That's my mom. This is me. I'm not my mom. That's my dad. That's me. I'm not my dad. Yeah, there, there, is, there is this perception of, of I am my skin. I stop here. But the Buddha sat there patiently and vigorously until he saw that those divisions are habit. That's a way of looking. And if you use this method, this Bodhisattva's method, you get past that limitation and something changes, which is your eyes change, your heart changes, and you see that the differences are like what? They're like a bubble on the top of the ocean. That's how insubstantial the differences are. And the Bodhisattva's wisdom says, we're the ocean. More than we're the bubbles. Yes, we are the bubbles. But what's different from one bubble to the next? Well, it's a, that's, there's two bubbles. I count two, right? But go, and they pop, and ocean. We're ocean, metaphorically speaking, right? So anyway, I'm, I'm off the topic here, but you get the point that sense of loneliness changes. And when that goes away, all the fear of not having the trophy husband, of not having the beautiful wife, of not having the perfect kids, of not having my kids go to the perfect college, of not being able to afford another car, don't like the old one anymore, all that stuff just goes pop, 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 pop. And you say, mm, we're really big ocean together. Let's... Let's put our, make our behavior based on that kind of genuinency instead of the pursuing more for me and fearing that there's less if, if they get it, right? That sense of zero sum. There's only this much and we're all fighting for it.
baloney. Okay, so that's vigor. There's vigor. That's why. That's why the Bodhisattva does it again. Does another rep. Cranks out another mile. Right? Sits another five minutes. That's why. So that he can, he or she can get to that place of seeing the, the sameness. He is intently seeking Buddhahood. Never tires or wearies. Determined to ascend and rescue living beings. Line three, promptly obtaining ten mindsets. We went through that at great length last week. It's in the, the text of the, the fourth ground. Turn over to page 26. Any, any questions or comments about what I just said about vigor and patience? And... Go for it. Hey, we got a mic. Way to go. When you're talking about the pain, when you get meditation, that kind of things, um, what I get is sleepiness, like drowsiness, and also the feeling where if I sit here longer, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm. Is that also part of it too? Okay, everybody hear the question? When you're meditating, uh, there are, there's a variety of states that can happen. And tell me your name. Trick, Trin? Trin, how do you spell? Trit. Trit's question was um, about what happens when you sit there. And my, my colleague, uh, who I meditated with a lot, Marty, got pain. I got drowsy. Um, my, both are afflictions, right? Both are not meditating. My experience of sitting was it didn't hurt much. I could keep my legs in full lotus a long time, but pretty quickly it was like and start start doing the, the penguin bobbing, you know, the duck. Where he's going like that. We're both meditating, sitting next to it. He's got a very different state than I do. So, both are affliction. Both are not not calm. And Everybody has a different combination of physical uh, flexibility and mental you know, drowsiness. What, what you discover if you sit, our, our monk, Master Dashing, is, you notice is not here tonight because he is doing just that. He's in New York State uh, in the mountains doing a meditation 10-day retreat. So um, what you discover is that uh, if you, here, this is my answer to your question, if you are in a form, if you're in a method, if there's somebody, for example, keeping time, right there, the, the timekeeper has got his clock and that incense is slowly burning down and you know that it's not going to go past 60 minutes. Where he's doing, they do 40 minute sits. Zen Center does 45, I think. We always did 60. We were the, the Marines of meditators. Yeah. Boot camp. 60 minutes. It's hard to sit 60 minutes if you're used to 30. Sitting 35 is hard if you're used to 30. So, But you know that incense is going to burn down, the bell's going to ring, and you can stand up. Okay, So you're not going to die. You know that, first of all. So there's, a, there's an outer limit to it. Um, if you are in a situation with a rigid form like that, and the pain starts at 30 minutes... You, you have a challenge. 
you know, you're going to have to wait that extra 30 minutes while it hurts, go through the pain. What's, if it's, everybody has a different set. If you're slowly progressing to where you can sit for 50 minutes, then that extra 10 minutes is not as hard. It still hurts. It's not quite as bad. So you progressively stretch your ability to sit if you're talking about meditation. What you'll discover at a certain point is the pain comes from your thoughts. And that's so counterintuitive. The pain in your legs comes from your mind. And people who sit, will, who have been through it, will, rec will acknowledge that. Hard to believe because it sure feels physical. Sure feels like my knee's about to explode, you know, or my back is like aching like mad, or my drowsiness is just a cloud, you know. It's all made from your thoughts. And there's that, that story that I told before about uh, meditating on Thanksgiving. And in a, I meditated with my colleague Marty uh, every night for two and a half years outdoors. And uh, we were sitting in a Plymouth station wagon in the back, Plymouth with the seat down. And on, Thanksgiving, on Halloween one night near Santa Barbara, uh, we were meditating and Marty was having a very hard time with this pain in his legs. It was just 212 degrees, just ooh, burning. And I was nodding like that. It was about nine o'clock. And suddenly there was this huge boom on the side of the car. And it was a sharp report. Somebody had walloped the car bad and we kind of rocked. Suddenly we're like both like that. And I kind of poke him and he goes, I don't, I don't talk. So we're like, nothing happened. We're so far, we're like miles from any town. If anything wants to eat us, we're, we're dead meat. You know, We're dinner for whoever wants to eat us because we don't fight and we don't have any weapons or anything. So if something that big is going to get us, it's, we're, we're got. You know. So we're sitting there and then boom, a second time, ooh, like this. And we're both like that. I'm not sleepy anymore. I'm thinking, Guan Yin Bodhisattva, pick up the phone. You know, we're calling. You know, and Marty is like, like that, and nothing happens. And after about ten minutes of sitting there, I hear him laughing. He's going, oh, 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 my God, oh, 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 why are you laughing, you idiot? What are you laughing at? Now I got a crazy monk as well as some murderer who's trying to kill us. You know? So we're like, no, he's laughing, laughing. And he, tr he lights the, the lantern, the oil, the kerosene lantern, gets out his journal and starts to write. And I can't wait to read what he wrote the next morning. So get up, dawn, the, the day breaks, and we um, do our morning chanting. Sun rises, and we think, you ready? Okay. Open the door go out to the side of the car and here are two huge pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns. Somebody scored the car with two pumpkins. It was Halloween. They threw these large jack-o'-lanterns, trick-or-treat, boom, against this, the monk's car. 
it was two pumpkins. It wasn't a murderer. Right? So, like, we're going, oh, boy, okay, thanks a lot. And I get his journal, and he says, it's all made from the mind. After the second pumpkin, my knees didn't hurt a bit. He had something else to think about, which was he thought he might get eaten any minute or killed. So the pain in his knees, no problem. And that's what he was laughing about, was how amazing it's made from the mind. Who would have thought, right? Made from the mind. So, but you have to have something bigger than the pain, which was the fear of being eaten, pushed all the pain in the knees out of his mind. So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny like that. But that was a dramatic proof of that principle, the, the knee pain. Now, mind you, um, there is a time when athletes will tell you this, that if you push past a limit, you can hurt yourself. I haven't heard of many meditators who like permanently injure themselves by sitting through till the end of the sit. It's, but your mind will tell you, I'm dying, I'm dying. Help, you're sadistic. I thought Buddhists were compassionate. Why are you putting me through this? You know, your mind gets really dramatic telling you why you should put your legs down. You know? And it helps, that's another reason why it helps to have people with you when you meditate. It helps to sit with people because you're a little embarrassed to make the noise of thump as your, neck, your knee goes down. And you're kind of sensing that they're, doing it, they're going through it too. So I can, I can wait a little longer. You know? So um, as you progress through your, your practice, your ability to sit still longer increases and grows. And Sherpa would say, Master Hua, he would say that the, the problem with the pain fundamentally is the pressure that's put on your knees as you fold up. The pressure is felt in your meridians, the thing that hold the chi that acupuncture works on, and your blood vessels. You could say nerves too. But when those things get folded up and there's this angle here in your knees that there's a, a pressure put on them. So the, right away we have a kind of a mechanical thought about those meridians and the blood vessels. The, the blood follows the chi, says Chinese medicine. And so if we're bending those at an acute angle, they're kind of knotted like a hose. I was watering this morning, and my hose got that knot in it where the water won't flow until you go and unkink the knot. Then suddenly the water's flowing. If you think of your meridians and the blood vessels that way, some of the pain has to do with that kink. However, if you can unkink it in your mind and say, okay, over time that will unkink. When the pressure builds up, it'll go through and then it'll be very comfortable. You tell yourself that and that's what happens. There is something called the pain gate that every meditator who goes from beginner to intermediate will have experienced. Where you're sitting there it's not hurting, you realize. That was Marty's experience. He went through the, the pumpkins, put him through the pain gate. And we all, after that, we thank the, the, uh, 
pain-pressure pumpkin bodhisattva who, you know, came and helped Marty through his pain gate with a pumpkin. So it's like, I've just been meditating for 20 minutes without a twinge. Wow. And as soon as you have that thought, guess what? It starts to hurt again. Why? There's an eye, there's a pain. But if you're just doing it, you're just sitting there, and your thoughts are much quieter, no pain. So it's very subtle. This is you and your mind going through this experience called being patient, being vigorous, entering samadhi. Then there's a time when it's all so smooth, you're, you go from coarse to fine. If you remember what it was like when you drove your first Volkswagen, anybody here from the age of 40-cylinder Volkswagens? Okay, a couple of us were that old. I used to tune up my own 40-horsepower Volkswagen engine because no computers to, to mess with. Just, it's all analog, right? When that was running good, it was like that, right? If you've ever listened to a Ferrari, 12-cylinder Ferrari, you turn it on, it goes, right? Versus, right? When you are a beginning meditator, you're the Volkswagen. It's pretty coarse. There's lots of exhaust, you know, and you kind of crank on that spanner till you get it just about right. When you're entering Samadhi, that very same Volkswagen becomes a 12-cylinder Ferrari. It's very well-tuned. And before you know it, you're zero to 60 as soon as you cross your legs. You know. Wow, I can really meditate now. Of course, I'm mixing my metaphors, but you get it, right? Oh, you car people, you understand. We're Americans, we understand cars. We do cars in this country. So if I say BMW, I'll go, you know, Got it. You know. So that's what it's like. And the only way there is patience when it hurts and vigor to do it again when it's boring. And if you do it over time, pretty soon it's like, wow. Huh. And uh, then you get a piece of counter evidence which you go, what? Somebody said to Master Empty Cloud, our teacher's teacher, who was famous for being able to cross his legs and sit still for 30 days. Right? Master Shuyin could sit for a week, sit for two weeks, sit for a month, longer, and everyone's going, say that again? How long? You know, He could enter samadhi and sit there for days on end. And he's famous amazing monk. And I remember somebody came up to him and said, but Master Shuyin, when did your legs stop hurting? And he said, what do you mean stop hurting? They've always hurt. And you go, what? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's going to be like this the rest of my, you know. How do, how, if they're always hurting, how do you sit still for a week? He said, I'm alive. When it hurts, I know I'm alive. I live with it. It's okay. I got over it. Oh no. I think I'll go get baptized. At least Jesus is safer. Right? Besides, the potlucks are much more fun. 
more pies, more chicken, you know. Uh, so yeah, he says, what do you mean stop hurting? It's like, oh no, it still hurts you? You're sitting there for a month and you're, yeah, I'm alive. I kind of like the pain. Uh, I know I'm alive. So that makes us think that like our culture is super addicted to pleasure and comfort. We are. If it feels bad, take a pill right away. Take an aspirin, you know. Okay. So what's the price of samadhi? Can't buy it, but you pay. You pay in discomfort and boredom. But if you pay that price, when you flip it over, you go from like that. And you have wisdom over time and compassion. Worth it. Worth the wait. More questions? More comments about this? Here we go. Gong Jing Sun De Xiu Xing Fa Chi En Yi Hui Wu Yun Bao Shi Man Li Chan Xin Tiao Rou Zhuan Geng Jing Jin he reveres honored virtuous ones and cultivates their dharmas, knows kindness, is easily instructed and without annoyance. He abandons pride, does not flatter, is tamed and compliant in mind. He increases in vigor and reaches non-retreat. When I read this, I was reminded of the Metta Sutta, right? The description in the Metta Sutta of what the cultivator's like, what the arhat is like. How does it go? You want to hear it? You want to hear it? This is the Buddha's, all of you psychotherapist types, this is the Buddha's psychology inventory, psychological inventory of what an arhat is like. Here we go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let her be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in her ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Right? That's the, from the Metta Sutta, that's the, um, the description of what an arhat would be like. Those qualities, right? Straightforward, gentle in speech, humble, not conceited, contented, easily satisfied. Imagine being easily satisfied. What's easily satisfied? That's good, I like it. That's, I'm, I'm happy with it. Plenty. Right? Not high maintenance. Not demanding. Not proud or demanding in nature. Not somebody who's like, hey, I'm walking here. Get out of my way. You know. You know who you're talking to. You know. Yakuza. Right? All the Korean and Japanese gangster movies you see. It's like, you're looking at me. You know. You know who I am. No, I don't know who you are. I don't think you know who you are either, frankly. <laughs> what? So, yeah, not like that. Instead, it's like, what's it like? 
you revere honored virtuous ones. Here is somebody who likes cultivators and people with wisdom. Why? Because they know things. And he needs to know things so he can teach people the Dharma. He cultivates the Dharmas that he hears. This is somebody who seeks the Dharma and puts it into practice. Someone who knows kindness, who's aware that he's been given to, she's been given to, is easily instructed. They get it quick. They learn without annoyance. If things don't go their way, you know what? I'm saving my my virtue because I'll need it later. I'm not going to get upset when reality doesn't like please what my eyes, my ears, my nose. This person has been through their senses. There's nobody there. There's nobody home in their senses. What do you mean it's got to be just one way? That, that would be such a lot of effort to make it to struggle with reality. The, in the Vipassana world, what's in that kind of medita- Buddhist practice, in the Zen world also, they say, what is it? Buddhism is things as they are. Things as they are. That's what you deal with. Not things the way you want them or somebody tells you the way they should be. What's worse, what if it's what Cosmo magazine tells you it's supposed to be like? What if it's if Vogue tells you it's supposed to be like this? And if it's not that way, you get upset. Who's running your life? Some corporate board of directors who hires an ad person to like a photographer to post this picture. And so that becomes the standard and you're upset if you're not. It's like too much work. You're not seeing past the surface. Right? Now there's a realm for, for fashion and style, nothing wrong with it, but don't let it run your life. Things as they are. Things that the mirror is, is showing you. Without annoyance. Abandons pride. Does not flatter others. Trying to get something for him, herself. Is tamed and compliant in mind. Soft. She increases in vigor and doesn't go back from it. So, when I read this, I have in mind a picture of a cultivator who looks, what do they look like? They look used, well used. They look like they've lived into their lives. They're not like uh, what do you say? When you go into a museum and it says please do not touch the pristine exhibit and you kind of look at it, you know, you can't touch it. Those kind of museums turn kids off right away. Just turn me off. What is the, it's like you want to inter, you want to find out what is it? What is it like? What does a flower feel like? Springy. It's really light, but it's still there. You know, it springs back. The wind can blow this any strength and it bounces right back. It's very light, but it's really strong. Wow, that's good design, you know. And when you touch it, you learn about it. And a cultivator has been touched a lot. By what? By experience. He has, she has lived into every part of their life. They cultivate. They transform every part of their life. There's no edge of their mind that they haven't explored. Cultivators shine light on all the dark spots in their life. 
So there's no shadows left inside. No ignorance left. They know. They've been sitting there watching their mind come up as they sit. Man, oh man, you want to get, you want to abandon pride and be tamed and compliant in mind, go bow for a long time. Those of you who did the 10,000 Buddha's repentance, I bet that there were moments, maybe many moments, when things came up that you had forgotten. Things came up that you wish you could still forget, right? Things from your childhood, things from maybe from last week that you did that were just like, oh, how could I have done that? I sure did. I forgot all about I'm ashamed. <laughs> okay, in my journal, Master Hua instructed me to keep a journal when I bowed. In my journal, I had a page of shameful events, I called it. Shameful events. Things that at the time when I did them, they made sense. But as I looked back and thought about them, because I actually what I did after I did these things is shoved them away. And when I'm bowing, because you're, you know, when you're bowing, you're like this, right? Where are the muscles that hold down all of those memories? They're relaxed and open to the sky. The bowing position is very much like the fetal position in the womb, right? Your knees are bent, they're up to your chest, your head is down by your knees. When was the last time you were like that? Well, for nine first nine months of your life, you were like that, and probably a few times afterwards, but not very often. When you bow, you go back to the fetal position. In our style of bowing, Tibetan is, is out, and the Theravada is from the knees. But we go standing down to the fetal position and back up. And that process makes vulner, exposes your back and it makes your chest protected. So things that you muscle armor away during the day, no, I'm fine. No problem. Everything's good. How do you do? Nice to meet you. I'm happy, you know. You cross your legs too. It's like, yeah, pleased to meet you. How do you do? I'm blocking as much as I can, you know, it's like extra layer of armor. When you're bowing, all that goes away like this, right? No weapons, notice. No, nothing I can draw because I'm like that. What happens is that armor goes away and the stuff on your mind comes up to the surface. Bowing is your own psychotherapeutic method. That works. It brings up the contents of your mind to your awareness. Does it ever? My shameful events page, I got it to this day. And uh, <laughs> there was one that I had completely forgotten about. When um, I was 1969 in Taiwan, and I had come with Oberlin College to study Chinese at Dunghai University. And they had gone home, and I determined to go on my own to Japan to investigate Buddhism. And I'd done all my preparation. I had addresses, contacts, places to go. But I was 19 years old, and I was on my own for the first time. 
no friends, didn't speak Japanese, and here I am in Japan. And two friends from, middle, from Donghai uh, had gone ahead and were living. They'd gone ahead after we spent some time together, and then they went to Japan. And they were newlyweds, Peter and Shelley. And uh, just a lovely couple, very nice. And they were in Kyoto, and actually they were in Tokyo. And so I uh, got very nervous about being alone. And I had their phone and their address, and I called them up. And they were very polite. Oh, nice to see you. Good. You want to, could we get together for some sushi or ramen or something? And okay, that'd be great. So how do I find you? And they gave me the address and I managed to show up at their apartment. And in Japan, you measure apartments by tatami, right? How big are tatami? Tatami are... And if you're a young couple struggling, you have, what, six tatami, three tatami, nine tatami, that's your apartment. Well, Peter and Shelley had, I think, a six tatami, nine tatami apartment, two rooms. And I came in with my suitcases and asked if I could stay there. They were newlyweds. They'd been married like three months or so. And... They didn't want me there in their tiny tatami apartment. And I was like scared to be alone in Japan. Didn't have contacts, didn't know where to go. So I like pretended I wasn't really in their, in their house. You know, <laughs> one day, okay. Two days, okay. Third day, it's getting old. By the end of the week, they said, We'd like to ask you to leave now. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And they were so polite to me. And I knew by the third day that it was time for me to go because they were like being very patient with me because they were, you know, brand new married couple. They didn't want this kid there, you know, in the apartment with them. And I was too too scared to go out on my own and push out into the big broad world you know they were so polite with me and then finally at the end they just had to throw me out of their apartment and I of course you know said, well okay you know if you want to be that much want to be like that well okay so and there I was face up against my fears which were totally groundless when I got to Kyoto I within two days I found a nice place people to take care of me and people I could help out, and, you know, I found a temple I wanted to live at. So I immediately swept that under the carpet of my mind, totally forgot about it. how embarrassed I felt to have to be thrown out because I should have gone four days earlier, you know, three days okay, fourth day not polite anymore. And so here I am bowing in Big Sur, right, on Highway 1, not a car, not a sound, just the ocean and seagulls and the wind. And I'm bowing down and immediately I'm back in Tokyo and my face is red and I'm going around picking up my t-shirts and socks and packing my suitcase because I've just been thrown out of Peter and Shelley's apartment. And I'm going, I'm bowing on, the, oh my goodness, you know, bow again, 
And of course, the state is gone at that point. But for that moment, I was in Tokyo. Being my face was red. I could feel the shame. I could feel the temperature. I could hear their voices, and my own reaction. It was as if a tape had been played back in my mind. What was it? It's something I was ashamed of that I had buried. And I bowed. I bowed into my own tape library, and. All of the senses, the amazing thing was, six senses intact. I could smell it, I could taste it, I could feel it, I could hear it, I could see it, and I felt it all at once, and bowed down. And I stood up and said, oh, that was so embarrassing. Why? And I thought, well, you were scared. That's called being afraid. Okay, so I bowed down, I said, I'm sorry, Peter, I'm sorry, Shelley. Apologize to you, you know, Christopher, for, you know, putting yourself in that situation. That was embarrassing. I would do it differently if I could do it again. I would have stayed a couple of days and gone on. So that's this amazing experience. But what does it do? It's hard to be humble when you think, it's hard to be proud when you think of those things. Humble. The cultivator on the fourth ground has been shining the light of his wisdom on every corner of his mind. All these things, bit by bit, come up. Because why? He's actually cultivating. He's bowing a lot. He's meditating a lot. He's living by the precepts a lot. She is examining her superstitions a lot and getting rid of the ones that aren't helpful. Superstitions. Isn't that interesting? That's why this bodhisattva knows kindness, is easy to teach, doesn't get annoyed, lets go of pride, doesn't flatter other people, is soft in her mind. He doesn't want there to be edges and corners and shadows and stuff he hasn't looked at. Because the more that wooming, that ignorance, the more those experiences can come to light, the sooner she gets back to her Buddha nature that's waiting for every bit of that stuff to come up and get washed off. Think about that. Why does it help to be patient? Because you've got to face all that stuff. If you're not patient, you'll, you'll just freak out or you'll be in denial, one or the other. But what you discover as you patiently wait it out is it comes up, it's kind of like a fart Right? What does a fart do? It stinks for a minute and it's gone. Right? You don't hang on to your farts. Right? They're over. Those experiences that arise in the mind are like swamp gas in the mind. It's stinky and you say, oh, I don't want to do that again. I hope next time I won't be so selfish as to, I'll let the newlyweds have their bedroom back, you know, the way they deserve to be together, you know, not with a third party. Two is company, three is a crowd, right? You bet. The third one is a crowd. So that's the experience. That's why the bodhisattva is soft in their mind. Not soft-headed, but not hard-edged. Let it go. And it's gone. And I think, I think in that experience, that that karma, if you can repent of those things, I think they're gone. Now, the question is, did you learn a lesson not to do it again? 
Maybe in the same situation, I'd be back doing the same thing. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe I've learned my lesson. But I believe that that's how repentance actually works. That you're working in there, you're plowing the ground, you're breaking up the big clods into smaller clods and adding compost, mixing the metaphor here, adding compost to the garden. It used to be hard soil. Now it's like really tilth, T-I-L-T-H. It's usable topsoil because you've been working on it. Any seed you put into that will grow. So it doesn't help to hold on to these arrogant attitudes. They're just in the way. They're all as false as the memory that, that rose. Not true, but real. Funny, huh? Make sense? Does that kind of anybody relate? Okay, moving on down. Pusa Jutsu Yan Hui Di Xi Xin Ching Jing Yong Bu Shi Wu Jie Jeding Shan Zeng Zhang Yi Wang Go Zhuo Xi Jie Li When the Bodhisattva stays upon this ground of blazing wisdom, his mind is purified, it's never lost. His enlightened understanding is decisive, his roots of goodness increase and grow. The net of doubts and turbidities are completely left behind. The ground of blazing wisdom is the name of the fourth ground. Mind gets purified. He never loses his, her mind, meaning that new wisdom. It doesn't go away now because there's nothing there. He's closer to his Buddha nature, which is bright. There's nothing blocking the sun. Once you, it's not that the clouds cover the sun. The clouds are between you and the sun. The sun didn't go anywhere. There's a layer there. Now this bodhisattva's clouds have been dispersed. His enlightened understanding is decisive. His roots of goodness increase and grow. Shangan increase. Goodness grows. The net of doubts and turbidities are left behind. Um, interesting to talk about doubts as a net. How do nets work? They're these little strings that you catch yourself in. You see a, a bird or a, a, a fish in a net. Once you're in the net, if you don't get caught on this over here, you get caught over here. And you can't, the more you struggle, the more it binds you. Doubts are like that. Doubts are a major affliction. They're one of the five basics. And... They're just in the mind. They're just like strings on a net. And if we can decisively cut through them, then we're free. Wisdom cuts through doubts. Doubts are bodhi, but you have to flip them over. You have to see through them. Okay. Feng Shui. Feng Shui. Geomancy. Okay. True. False. Wisdom. Superstition. Well, good question. 
there are principles of harmony and balance that are true. There's a level of physics, of mm, resonance, vibration, where feng shui works. Just like what? Like the I Ching, the Book of Changes, works in that realm. Astrology works in that same realm of vibration. Things harmonize or they clash. Energy flows or like a kink in a hose, it gets stuck. All right? So there are principles in feng shui that are useful and valid. They help you understand how energy harmonizes or doesn't harmonize. And if you adjust it, you get things back. That very same knowledge of a level of physics, you could say, can be abused and taken right into superstition. All right? So, somebody's mom is rearranging their bedroom for them and says, okay, you've got to put the bed here because why? You have to keep your head to the north, right? Feet to the south. That's the only way you can sleep. And you say, but that's really ugly. Put the bed there, it doesn't work. I don't like the room at all. You know, makes me unhappy. You got to do it, because why? I say so, says mom. Otherwise, otherwise, you never know, bad stuff can happen. Right? Ah, ding, ding, ding. What's that? That's called fear. Bad things will happen if you don't, what? Uh, make the energy accommodate with what the formula is, right? You say, but mom, I'm already unhappy <laughs> because the bed is ugly. Not doesn't work there. I don't like it there. Oh, but you got to because, you know. So that's where doubts get in the way of clear seeing. What's the point? Feng Shui is a way of seeing that is a principle. All right? Do it this way, it's in harmony. This way, it's in conflict. What if... There's competing principles. Then you've got to have wisdom, right? So if you insist that it's one way because that's what the formula says, but the result is affliction, eh, it's not the way to do it. Some people cultivate Buddhism to the point where they're totally afflicted the more they cultivate, right? It's like going fast down the wrong road. I may, not, I may be lost, but I'm really moving. You know, <laughs> you know that bumper sticker? I might be lost, but I'm really making time. You know? So, yeah, right. The point of cultivation is not to get afflicted. Connie? Say again? Yeah, there, yeah I think so. Feng Shui is, is, a vari- is, a, is a set of principles. And at heart, there's, there's something there. But uh, you can turn something wholesome into something f- unwholesome as soon as you um, get fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, benefit, or dishonesty in it. How does it become dishonest? When you say, oh, I see your house uh, doesn't, have enough, uh, doesn't have enough fire. Okay, hang up this mirror over here in the corner, and there's the fire right there. That'll be $300. I just happen to have one. Aren't you lucky? Here's the $300. They got the check. You, know, you hang the mirror, the feng shui master gets $300 and nothing changes. You know. So that's where you take a principle, which is 
Fire should be balanced in the right place. Don't put the stove in front of the door, you know, etc. Don't put the bathroom in the living room, you know. Don't put the toilet in, in the east, you know, etc., etc. There, there are some basic principles that are there. But you make them go bad as soon as you insist on them, as soon as you don't see the bigger, the whole picture, as soon as you do it for profit motive, etc. I was an astrologer when I was a grad student, and I really enjoyed seeing how people interacted. And I got pretty good at being able to look at principles on the chart as a symbolic description of people's harmony. And I turned professional astrologer and all the joy went away. It still kind of worked, but not the same. Why? Greed and seeking and self. Three of the six guidelines came in right away. I wanted something from it. I wanted money. All the joy. I could do it, but it was like mechanical. The spirit went away. The principles got polluted by the clouds of greed. So, can't insist on stuff. Anyway, okay. So, the bodhisattva's mind is purified, it's never lost. Her enlightened understanding is decisive. Her goodness grows. The net of doubts, the turbidities, are completely left behind. They're no longer covering the nature. They don't come back. All right. Three more paragraphs here. And two more that we don't have translated. And we're done with the fourth. We'll finish next week. Okay, can we transfer the merit? Do you have the uh, your chanting sheet that came with your sutra there? That has the dedication of merit on it. bit flat there. Um, If you there it is. Much better. So, if you are feeling um, balanced and in harmony, and there's no immediate uh, trouble or disaster to transfer merit to, um, I would suggest a good place to transfer merit would be to the souls like mine, like yours, that are currently in animals' bodies. 
that die every year to the tune of hundreds of billions for just because we humans, we're the killers. We decide they're expendable. And we're bigger than they are and we run faster or longer. And so we kill them and eat them or turn them into clothing or and their lives are suffering and that we share this planet with them and so um, that's one place to transfer because we share a Buddha nature with them we probably have been them at some point and they're undergoing that experience now so it doesn't stop it happens day and night around the world so if we can transfer merit that they're burden be reduced and also for the people who do the killing they're um, heading towards the other end of the stick they're heading towards being killed because of the killing they do so there's a good place to transfer merit as one and radiant with light. Share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity, May their minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light Break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all Become compassionate and wise. Could you turn in your songbook to um, page eighty seven? This is one of those songs that we don't sing that often. 
because it's a bummer. It's not a happy song. And I've asked uh, the mad cow to explain it to us. He's, uh, he'll guide us through the song. Make a commentary to it. So how does it go? You know as well as I do, I can't read. Oh, well, that's a point. Uh, but I think you probably know this song in your heart. Can I lick it? Maybe if I lick it, I'll get it. No, that's, no. Doesn't work by osmosis. But this is a song about you. All right. Well, uh, why don't you help me? Okay, can I, how about if I read it for you? Yeah. And you can move your mouth and pretend like it's you. Okay, that's a good idea. Here we go. In this Kansas City steakhouse, there ain't much for me to eat. The choices on the menu let me choose five kinds of meat. Yeah. Keep your breadsticks and your salad. I got the hungry vegetarian blues. That's too true. It's really painful, especially when one of the menu choices is my leg. Yeah. I was attached to that leg, whether you know it or not. When you get it, it's called steak. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's my leg. Okay. So go ahead. Yeah. All right. If that entree had a mother, don't feed it to me. If you chased it before you cooked it, I would rather set it free. I got the cooking without cruelty, hungry vegetarian blues. I kind of like this song. It's good. It's kind of, you know, because my mom, she's, she loves her kids. I remember her fondly. And uh, people say she was a cow of rare good taste. That, that's a pun. Uh, yeah, that's kind of, okay. Right. Now that happy meal ain't happy. If you ask the cow that died, right. I'd be unhappy too with my legs barbecued and fried. Chops and steaks were someone's body. Now they got the vegetarian blues. Boy, this is really a graphic song. Yeah, I like it a lot. That's really telling it like it is. Bob Dylan write this song? No, no, he didn't. Who, Bono? No, 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 no. Mick Jagger? No, no, no. I wrote it. You wrote it? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, okay. There's more. Okay. Compassion is a virtue we love impartially, all you liberal Birkenstock wearers. Yeah. Until it's time for dinner, then we discriminate, you see, between our pets and our pot roast. You got the sad-eyed vegetarian blues. Yeah. That, you call this one dog, you call that one beefsteak. Yeah. Well, hypocrites. Oh, that's really mean. Well, it's my body. Yeah. Okay. So, you going to memorize it? Once I learn to read. Okay, good, good. Good, yeah. Well, maybe we can make a revolution in those Kansas City steakhouses. Yeah. We could start by... Uh, You know, we're actually getting our revenge one cancer case at a time. Yeah, 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 right. One heart attack at a time. We get our revenge. Of course, by that time, it's too late. We become your body. How long since you had some steak? Good for you. Okay, great. A mad cow. He's pretty good. Okay, Uh, this song. You know why I decided to sing this tonight? Um, We have goats out back. Did you all know this? We have neighbors who's got four goats over on Roosevelt. And uh, very nice looking goats. The parents are big, big.
big tall goats and their two babies. Babies are always butting each other. And they talk 24, all night long. And uh, I'm getting better at it. Maybe I was a goat or will become one, I don't know. So these, uh, they're out there. And Ron was here, Ron Epstein today, and Ron said that he has a relative, I think it's his sister, who raises specialty goats, uh, raises for goat milk and goat cheese and stuff. And uh, I said, wow, that's neat. He says, yeah, it's not so great, because why? All of the karma of killing that has to do with the goats. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, all the boys... What do you mean? He says, they have to kill the billy goats. You can't have a lot of billy goats. You only need one. What about all the other boys? And just hearing that, the reality of it set in. How many bulls do you see out in the field? What happens to the other boy cows? You only need one bull. Make all the cows pregnant. What if you had like ten bulls? They're all fighting for each other. Too much trouble. Kill them all. It's no fun being a billy goat. Bad luck to be a bull. The realities of livestock. You ever think of that? Like when he said it this morning, it was like, Oh, yeah, I never added that up because I didn't grow up on a farm. Check the sex of the little calf coming out. If it's a heifer, you keep it. If it's a bull, bye-bye, bull baby, baby bull. Bye-bye, billy goat. Kill him. So I added a verse to the song. It's called, It's Bad Luck to Be a Billy Goat. In this Kansas City steakhouse, there ain't much for me to eat. The choices on the menu let me choose five kinds of meat. Keep your breadsticks and your salad, I got the hungry vegetarian blues. If that entree had a mother, don't feed it to me. If you chased it for you cooked it, I would rather set it free. I got the cooking without cruelty, hungry vegetarian blues. Now that happy meal ain't happy If you ask the cow that died I'd be unhappy too With my legs barbecued and fried Chops and steaks with someone's body Now they've got the vegetarian blues Here we go That's another Now compassion is a virtue We liberals love impartially. 
Until it's time for dinner, then we discriminate, you see. Between our pets and our pot roast, one you love, one you eat. We got the sad-eyed vegetarian blues. I got the, got the vegetarian blues. We're missing a verse. We got to get that bad luck to be a baby bull in there somehow. Bad luck to be a billy goat verse. Okay, so some songs are not quite finished, but now what I wanted to do quickly before it gets too late is flip on the projector and flip off the lights because I want to show you all some. Now, what I wanted to share with everybody is two, two things. The first is something I was surprised and delighted to see. This changes our resolution now. We've got to tame our projector. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. Might be, yeah. Okay. Take a look at this. Hmm, that's not going to do it. Here, we'll do it here. Watch what I type into Google. You're not typing anything into Google. Bill Gates advocates vegetarianism. Now, we know about Bill Clinton, 
There's another famous bill. There we are, coming right up. This. Bill Gates uh, has done a lot since Microsoft uh, made him the world's richest man. He's no longer exactly the world's richest person. He's one or second or third, but he has done a great deal with his wealth. He is now from a business point of view, this is what's so interesting. Billionaire Bill Gates is a vegetarian who has become a vocal advocate for plant-based diet. Gates says a vegetarian diet is healthier and more environmentally friendly than a meat-based diet. And he notes that the production of meat is responsible for over half the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Now that's from a bottom line point of view. It's not for compassion. But it's very effective. Moving, quote, Bill's, here's Bill's quote. Moving towards a vegetarian diet is important too in light of the environmental impact of large-scale meat and dairy production with livestock estimated to produce nearly 51% of the world's greenhouse gases. He said on March 21st. So, environmental. That's where he's coming from. That's why he's advocating vegetarianism. The environment. He says if you eat vegetables you're doing more than if you change from a, a, a Hummer to a Prius. You're doing more for the environment. He says, the global population is on track to reach 9 billion in 30-some years, 30, 37 years. What are all those people going to eat? With billions of people adding more animal protein to the diet, meat consumption is expected to double, by the way, by 2050. It seems clear that arable land for raising livestock won't be able to keep up. In other words, there's just not enough land to grow the food for the feed all the animals that are supposed to be eaten by people in 2050. Can you imagine the amount of cows doubling now that will get killed? Okay. Gates, the co-founder and chairman of Microsoft and co-chair of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, regularly blogs about the future of food on his website, on his blog. Bill says, now here's where you get the Bill Gates that we know and love, the inventor. He says, there are great innovations taking place in food production that can create delicious plant-based meat substitutes that mimic the taste and texture of meat. What is he advocating? Suro. Jaro, right? Which is mock meat. Mock meat. Food scientists are now creating meat alternatives that truly taste like and have the same mouthfeel as their nature-made counterparts. All this innovation could be great news for people concerned about health relating to overconsumption of fat, salt, and cholesterol. So Bill is on the right track here. He's, got, he's using the right language. Gates, 57, says the innovations can also help with hunger relief efforts in poor countries. In 2012, Gates Foundation announced plans to invest in genetically modified agriculture to combat world hunger. Oops. Uh. While the move has been criticized by some, including me, 
Gates insists a plant-based diet is the cornerstone of superior health, hunger relief, and is better for the environment. Quote, there are thousands of plant proteins in the world. Many have, have, have yet to be explored for use in production of meat alternatives. I'm hopeful that we can begin to meet the demand for protein-rich diet in a new way. We're just at the beginning of enormous innovation in this space. So he's pushing us towards using technology to feed ourselves. In other words, high-tech food, plant-based, meat alternatives. Isn't that interesting? That's the way Bill would do it, but man, I'll take it. If we have Bill Clinton and Bill Gates both saying plant-based diets are where it's at, okay. That's a lot of Bill power, a lot of firepower. Who agrees? Okay, right here. Here's another one of those. Oops, we're going to get an ad here first. Here's another one of those vegetarians who we can kind of pay attention to or not. Here he is, Mr. Singh, 100-year-old marathoner, vegetarian, 101 years old. I will not stop running, but I will do it for my personal health instead of competing. Mr. Fauja Singh, a 101-year-old marathoner, ran his last competitive race in Hong Kong in February, putting an end to his running career that began when he was 89. Look at this. There he is. He runs in his turban, 26 miles, 26 and a half miles. I am feeling very happy about the race. Every time I run, I feel so fresh. Singh told the Telegraph, after finishing the Hong Kong Marathon's 10K race in one hour, 32 minutes, and 28 seconds. 10, he went, he went uh, what, 10, 10K is 10,000 meters in 90 minutes. Fauja, a British runner of Punjabi Sikh descent, began running to cope with depression after his wife and son died two years apart. He ran his first full marathon in London in 2000 at the tender age of 89 years old. Singh was a farmer in India, has completed nine 26.2 marathons. London, Toronto, New York. He clocked his personal best time of five hours and 40 minutes at the 2003 Toronto Marathon. While he has been touted as the oldest marathoner after completing a Toronto waterfront marathon, Guinness Book of Records hasn't officially recognized him because he doesn't have a birth certificate. He's 5'8", 117 pounds, a lifelong vegetarian who attributes his longevity and good health to a portion-controlled, plant-based diet. It's the dollar, the dollar in the rice. In the Sikh, relig Sikh religion, we eat to live, not live to eat. Fauja told PETA, Sikhism does not permit followers to, any, to eat any animal that has suffered. You need a balanced and wholesome diet. It doesn't matter how nice to look at or sweet food is. If your body can't digest it, why eat it? In many parts of the world, people are dying because of starvation, while others are dying because of overeating. My solution is, eat what my body needs. When, while Fauja won't be running more marathons, he'll continue to run to stay fit. I feel I must retire on a high, he said. I will not stop running, but we'll do it for personal. Isn't that something? Look at him. 101. <laughs> All right, David, we're looking at you. <laughs> 
Look at that. You got years to go, man. Years to go. Don't quit. All right. How interesting. Aren't you glad you came tonight to find out about all that?